0: This episode of Should We is brought to you by MailChimp.
1: Should We began with Tiny Letter, which is perfect for experiments and personal newsletters. Tiny
0: Letter is part of MailChimp's portfolio of services for getting the word out about what you're making. And now that we're actually trying, we decided to graduate from Tiny Letter to MailChimp proper, where we'll be sending our newsletter from now on.
1: With our brand new template. You can sign up for it at shouldwe.co. Hello, Diana. Hello, Lisa. Welcome to Should We? A conversation with friends about the everyday choices that make us. This episode is a conversation between Diana and her dear friend, Kate Houston. Diana, who is Kate?
0: Kate is a writer, an engineering leader, and a world traveler. She also writes two newsletters, which you'll hear about in this episode, and I like to call her a professional friend because she's so, so good at all the things that go into being a good friend, even at a distance. So it was very exciting to sit down with her in my kitchen, in person, and get to hear all about her opinions.
1: Hello, Kate. Hello, Diana. How are you? I'm as good as you can be when you flew all night from Colombia to this terrible place, San Francisco. (laughs) I have not yet seen a raccoon. The the weather's nice.
0: So, So
1: preamble, should we go to San Francisco? No, no, not unless someone pays you. How did this rule come about, Kate? Because it's a terrible place. But one day the raccoons will defeat the programmers and then San Francisco will be livable again. How do you think the raccoons will defeat the programmers? Well, they're like stronger, smarter, and infinitely more adorable than programmers. So like, obviously the raccoons will win. So Kate, uh, we met on the internet. Mm -hmm. We met on the internet. Of course we met on the internet. Isn't that how you meet all your friends? Mm, It actually is. Yeah, me too. Me too. We're like that way.
0: Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think is great about you is that you blog really regularly. Oh, thank you. So, one question for you is, should we blog? Uh,
1: I mean, if you want to.
0: (laughs) Do you subscribe to a follow-your-heart
1: philosophy of decision-making? No, I mean, I subscribe to a, like, figure out what you want to be doing, define a process that makes sure that you're doing it. Like, I get a lot of value out of blogging, um, and... You know, it's been really good for me, but I'd say it's been something that's been really good for me over a really, really long period of time, you know, and so I've been blogging like regularly since grad school with like a couple of periods where, you know, I didn't write so much for whatever reason. But, you know, in 2016, if someone was like, oh, should I start a blog, then, you know, I think the answer to that's often very mixed, right? And so no one, I think, has ever taken my advice about starting a blog, but I normally tell people to, like, put together a month's worth of content before you put your blog together. And um, because, like, the thing is, like, writing with no blog and no readers is like step 1 I think and then once you have a blog you still have no readers and you have to keep writing but you've done some work to set it up so I think you're better to like do your writing for a month schedule your blog for like a month and then hopefully at the end of it you're getting enough feedback but like for your first blog posts I think you probably won't You know what I mean? It's like giving yourself an excuse for why there are
0: no readers because you haven't shared any of it yet. But there would probably be no readers anyway.
1: Exactly, exactly. Like there's a lot of blog posts, a lot of blogs out there with only one blog post. Yeah. Or no blog posts. Yeah, that's one of the reasons
0: I really like Medium these days is because they designed the whole thing so that you could write one post Mm -hmm. and that could be the end of it. And it's not a blog per se. You can treat it like a blog if you keep going with it. But it's really optimized for the single piece. And I think that that sets up the right expectations so that people don't end up
1: in a guilt spiral. Certainly, I feel that way. For for me, part of the purpose of the newsletter is that it's a little bit more... Well, I mean, I have two newsletters, right? So one of them, the purpose of it, is that it's ephemeral, it's not online. The only way to get it is your inbox. Which newsletter is that? That's called Where the Hell is Kate? (laughs) (laughs) Which I send from airports every time I leave. And how did that project start? Um, I used to send people postcards, and this was actually a surprisingly time consuming activity. And postcards, are, like, people don't respond to postcards. Every so often, someone will take a picture and tweet about it. But, like, they take such a long time to reply, to, like, receive, right? Like, it's really, mail is really slow. And, um, yeah, so I decided that I would send a digital postcard instead. And that, You know, in order to create space for sending digital postcards, I would give up physical postcards. And did it work? Yeah, it's been great. So now we're in August. So for seven months, I've sent, I think, around 30, 31, 31 digital postcards of like, think about 270 subscribers, which is like a very low number by like a standard newsletter. But in terms of something that I started to keep in better touch with my friends, I think is like surprisingly popular. And I mean, the main thing is that I do feel I'm, like I'm in better touch with people. Like for you, I always listen to Should We on planes. And so when I'm when I get on a plane, it's because I've just sent a where the hell is Kate. So I feel like these two projects bring us closer together even without us talking to each other directly. That's so true because they're sequenced with similar habits. Right, exactly. But do you remember when my plane was delayed and I was like live messaging you as I listened to your <laughs> podcast? I'm like, oh my god. And so then I was like, maybe I should like find some way to listen to podcasts where I still have internet, <laughs> which means I probably won't be on a plane. And it's cool because I can discuss your podcast podcast with you in real time, but then the downside of it is that that connection between those two projects would be lost. Right, right, right. I don't know if I'm willing to give that up. (laughs) Yeah, it's special to me. (laughs) And what's your other newsletter? It's called Technically Speaking, which I ran with one of my friends, and it's focused on public speaking in tech. And we, you know, it's like we have a secret feminist agenda, which has become progressively less secret over time. So we include at least 50% of the content is from women. We actively look f- to include other underrepresented groups and we include like two or three CFPs a week. And they always have a code of conduct, they always make an effort for speaker travel costs. And so the idea of it is that we curate a picture of the tech industry that we wish we saw, which is obviously very far from reality, but you know We're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> Newsletter the reality you
0: want to bring about. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. I think that's like a like a powerful thing to do is to create a platform and to use it to be like, this is how things should be, even if it's not how things are yet. And what's the
0: most rewarding one-time thing that's come out of doing Technically Speaking?
1: It's when I like see someone speaking, and they're like, oh, you're Kate? You do Technically Speaking? You know, I was like, I submitted to this conference because I saw it in Technically Speaking. That's so cool. Yeah, so I've heard that like a lot now, and it's amazing. It's like so amazing. And is that, I mean, you have a lot of constraints that
0: you put on the project to make sure that it's sustainable, but mm-hmm. of those, I mean, talk about those constraints and then
1: we can talk about them more. <laughs> you want me to tell you about when we went on strike? Yes, I yes. do want to tell you. <laughs> yeah. I loved going on strike. Uh, we'll only send an issue when we have a sponsor now. So we started doing sponsorship... I think about nine months into the project. Um, and so we were sending out a letter every Tuesday. And then we kind of got to this point that we we're like, okay, we should try and make this sustainable. And to us, sustainability means that it pays for itself. So we can buy stickers. You know, if we did a mentoring thing and we wanted to be able to like do something for our mentors. Yeah, so we needed money for it to be sustainable. So we launched sponsorships. We did the first month at like $100 each. And then after that, we started doing it at $250 each. We were doing really well, and then I pulled out of a conference for not having a code of conduct, and you know hilarity ensued. By which you know I mean harassment, and people stopped sponsoring us. So they stopped sponsoring us for like we didn't get a new sponsor for like nine weeks or something. Wow, it was really bad, and it was really really discouraging because it felt like there was this very like exact tie between them. You know, it was jarring because like I got a lot of like support personally. But our project had become like a diversity project, which meant that, you know, we should be doing it for free, apparently, says the patriarchy, but I disagree. So then we kind of, things kind of picked up again, but, you know, then I did it again. My poor friend who does this project with me. It's always me that causes trouble. And, um, you know, I I was on a podcast, I talked about some of this stuff, like more openly than I have before. And once again, people stopped sponsoring us. And this was really jarring because I was at a Women Who Code event in Seattle and I was hearing a lot of this like, oh, you know, thanks so much for technically speaking. It's made such a big difference to me. And, you know, it was clear that we had something of value and that we were making a difference, but it was also clear that people didn't actually value it monetarily. So then we went on strike. (laughs) And we decided that if we didn't have a sponsor, we weren't going to send an issue anymore. And uh, so we took a week off. And we like tweeted about how we were on strike and how, you know, sustainable projects required money and that just because something considered inclusion and considered women as first class consumers of the content and looked to profile other index people in technology, that didn't mean that, that people shouldn't pay for it. And uh, then things got better, so <laughs> we we ended up having three sustaining sponsors. So we had two initially. We launched those, I think, in May, and then we added a third in June. And so now they all commit to one issue a month. So now three issues a month are booked. We're booked through I think our next available sponsorship slot is like in October. So. It's sustainable and like we actually give away almost I think all the money, maybe more than the money we make. But we still just don't think that we should be doing it for free. That's right. And thinking about money as a means of making other people invest. Right. There's various companies I know who they are, and and we have like fan clubs there, like you know, and it gets recommended to people as part of their professional development. But they never even sponsored one issue, and it's you know like everything that is in some sense open source. Like we actually open source, technically speaking, it's all on GitHub. You can see our commits. You can see how an issue gets built up. You can um, you can file like an issue to include a CFP. But in all this stuff, like it's only sustainable if people keep working on it.
0: And for you to keep working on it, it's important to know that other people are willing to step up as well.
1: It's important that it's valued. It makes me very angry that like devaluation of work done by women. It makes me very angry that there's this idea intact that like we need to improve diversity. And like I use diversity deliberately rather than inclusion, but no one wants to pay for it. Like, I think people value the things that they pay for. Like, money is just how we articulate our value for something. It's like our agreed-upon currency to say, if this is important, I will pay for it, you know? So as a company, if you want, I don't know, like a new brand identity or something, you pay someone to do it, right? You know, and like the same way... I don't know if you get these messages, but I sometimes like, oh, you know, how do I hire more women to my company? Can you just help me? And it's like, well, one, diversity is more than women. (laughs) Two, how are you going to treat them? Three, the fact that you're asking me to help you with this for free makes me think you're not going to treat them well.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can tell a lot about someone's values from where they put their money, basically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Do you think about that in personal
1: terms as well? Like, Do you try to align how you spend money with your values? So I've been based in Colombia for most of this year, and I definitely try to like support you know local industries in Colombia or local business in Colombia. Another line
0: of questioning
1: um, should we give advice no say more <laughs> I mean, I just think people are way too willing to give advice like i I don't personally like receiving unsolicited advice. For me at least, this is I'm I'm giving people advice about giving advice. Anyway, I'm just gonna say what I decided to do, which is to not give people advice. And so of course I still end up giving people advice, but like <laughs> I just try a lot harder to restrain myself, you know? And to ask a question that I think is really important, which is do you want some advice? Because often, you know, we're in this situation, like I'm sure you've been there, you just you just need to emote. And then someone starts being like, Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? It's like, Look, I'm totally gonna deal with this problem. But like, first, I just need to complain about it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, have you ever given advice that was successful? I think the most successful advice that I've given has been asking good questions so that somebody draws their own conclusions. It's much more of a coaching mode, really. Yeah. I mean, it's like often you give advice to someone because you feel like you have some kind of perspective that they don't. And like, maybe that's true. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you ask the right questions, then maybe you can help them like get a little bit of that perspective. I did this the other day and I think someone's not going to move to San Francisco now. So (laughs) I have like done everyone a favor because there's too many people here and they don't need to live in San Francisco. But actually like on the advice giving, one of the things that I've taken even further with it is that I don't even give people book recommendations anymore. Like if I truly believe that someone should read this book, I will buy it for them. How has that gone? Pretty well. Yeah. The thing about advice is that it's free and it's kind of worthless often, right? And so the act of like buying somebody a book is saying this is how much I believe in this advice is that I'm going to pay for it for you.
0: I started sending people books as well a few years ago and it was part of my effort to figure out a better reciprocation system mm-hmm. for random inbound emails. So I was very happy to receive letters from out of the blue. At the time I've developed a more complicated perspective (laughs) over time. Um, But I actually had in my online bios, I love getting letters out of the blue, and people would write to me out of the blue all the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would want advice, sometimes they would want a call, sometimes they would want a recommendation, and uh, a lot of the time, if it was someone who seemed pretty earnest, and had like a category of challenge that I knew there was a book for. You know, It was mm-hmm. like a how-do-I-find-a-job-I-like type of challenge. And I knew exactly the book that I would be referring to the whole time we talked. Instead of writing a long response that summarized the book in ways that I thought would be relevant for them, I would just ask for their address and send them the book and then invite them to write back to me once they'd read it. And this seemed to go really well in that it was equivalent input inputs and outputs. So it was, you know, someone had emailed me out of the blue. They weren't really expecting a response. They were hoping for a response. And a response where someone invests in you by sending a book is like quite a generous response in some ways. But for me, it was a lot easier than sitting down and writing a thorough response that was tuned to exactly their needs because that takes emotional energy, it takes time, uh, it takes you know, it takes a prioritization of it, and then it takes me getting over the guilt of not having done it if I don't do it right away. So having an immediate response that was pretty standard, sending yeah. someone a book, seemed to work
1: really well. The issue is that I would never hear back from people. Well, most people don't follow up. Right? So I, I think this is the other thing about advice is that good advice requires a lot of context. And so, you know, to give advice to someone who you actually know very well is, like, different. You get an email from someone, it's often very superficial. You know, you don't really know what's going on with them. You would need to ask a lot of questions to get that context. So advice can be really harmful if it's given without that context. I also think that sometimes people will ask strangers on the internet for advice when They don't need advice. Like, they know what they need to do. They just don't want to do it. I used to have someone who would ping me very regularly to tell me how much she hated her job. And, like, she didn't need advice. She needed to quit her job and get another one. But she just couldn't ever seem to make that decision. So I think, like, sending a book, and I've definitely done this with people who reach out to me for mentorship, is that I'll set them a little test. You know, so I'll do something that is low time for me and I'll see what they come back with. And the people who I consider that I have most successfully mentored are the people where I give them something and they go and 10x it and then they come back again.
0: Yeah, I found the same thing for sure. And I think that uh, finding the thing that I can, the thing that I can do that is still generous, but Mm -hmm. just in a way that isn't so costly for me like it's still a nice thing but it's of the category of thing where i'm very happy to support authors amazon makes things really easy (laughs) i can send a book anywhere i can even send them a kindle book if they want a kindle book instead um you know all of that's very very easy but then it creates an opening it's not shutting the door but it is asking more
1: yeah i mean people have to like i'm sure you have a lot of mentors because you're very worth mentoring Like everything you get, you pay forward, you know, you share in your newsletter, which is all about like what you've learned, you know, like you're a very giving person in general. So like everything that anyone puts into you, like they see going out into the world, even if it doesn't come back to you. But there's a lot of people who will reach out for mentorship, but they're essentially just like black holes. Like anything I give to them is just energy that I've expended that's just going nowhere. And that, like, I'm not saying these people aren't worthy of help, but that for me, I want to focus on things that scale. You know, I want to help people who are going to 10X it and they're going to pay it forward and they're going to have a huge difference to a bunch of other people. Or I want to help people through the medium of, you know, like technically speaking, I can mentor like several thousand people every week instead of, you know, someone one-on-one. Yeah, the idea of becoming a
0: ten x conduit. <laughs> I'm trying to think about how I would, you know, if there's like a recipe for doing that. You know, one thing I know is that I am really excited whenever I see anyone sharing what they're learning in public, mm-hmm. um, which is very selfish because that's one of my whole things. But I think it's very generous. Yeah, know, I think it's very yeah. gen- generic. Is what I mean. Like, I mean, um, it's a,
1: it's a straightforward thing to do. Wayne, I have like so much help and I'm pretty sure it's because everybody who knows me knows that if I've learned something I will write about it. Like everything I know I feel no, not everything. I would say that like ninety percent of what I know is documented online. hmm Right. And I wanna
0: come back to that because earlier you were saying that you end up you, you blog for documentation and yeah. my friend Christina she has this great line about writing to link back to later so she writes the things she knows she'll want to link to and she did this experiment we did it together last year where I set up a medium publication that I told her was a magazine with one author and the author was her (laughs) and she owed me a pitch every week and I would pick one of the three pitches and I would edit it for her This would not have worked on me. I do not respond well to people tough-loving me, (laughs) unbidden. But she had specifically indicated that she was into that and that it worked really well on her and that it was just a personal hack that she hadn't found a way to exploit yet. And I was like, I will help you exploit this. (laughs) So she did it. She wrote 10 amazing posts. Yeah, I read a bunch of them. They were all again. And at the end of it, she reflected on it. And she'd had some of those posts go super viral. I think one of them was the number one post on Medium for a few days. Yeah. And she reflected on that and said, "You know, the posts she was happiest to have written were the ones that people who knew her well responded to mm-hmm. or who brought new people into her life who turned out to be really important, even in the span of a few months, or that she could link back to later, that per- that started to create this constellation of content that was all very true to her and all interrelated. and. I think about that a lot, both in terms of what I put out in public and even what I do at my job. You know, I work at a job where everything's documented because Mm -hmm. we make a writing product. And I will often realize that I'm trying to gesture toward a stable concept As like a justification for doing something. And I keep writing the same justification paragraph over and over to sort of like back up a decision. And I'll realize I should just refactor and extract that into a document that I can reference in line. And then it creates this web of information, literally. So creating personal webs of information, I think, is an interesting way to think about what you put out there and what you
1: put time into documenting. So I think that's true, but I I think like there's kind of two themes in terms of like what motivates you. Maybe Christine is motivated by part of what she's motivated by is like I want to look back and be really proud of this post. Part of what motivates me, honestly, is just like a schedule. Everything runs on a schedule. <laughs> you no, know my blog runs on a schedule, technically speaking runs on a schedule. Where the hell is Kate is kind of less on a schedule, but there's still like a trigger point for it. So I know when everything is gonna be published in that, like it's like I have this constant series of mini deadlines. And this is very motivating to me. Like, this works very well for me. There are people who my system would drive insane. And so I think it's about kind of deciding what system it is that works for you and then creating it for yourself you know, but there has to be some kind of benefit to you. Either it's that you're like proud of like what you've written, or you like feel like you have documentation on things, or like you feel like you met people. Like any blog post you put out in the world, I don't think you can know as you publish it what the benefit of it's going to be. And I have things that I've written that I'm like, this is like a profound insight that people need to read. And like, they've not been you know as popular as I really hoped that they would be and then I have things that I put out that I'm like this is a very obvious thing and you know they've really resonated with people maybe they're still going you know it's only like six months or a year later I can look at a blog post and I can be like oh this is what I got out of that blog post but when I hit publish or really in my case schedule I have no idea what's the most
0: unexpected thing that's come out of (laughs) blogging for you
1: um I mean, probably what I mentioned earlier, which is that how many people I have who are like kind of mentors or like really friends, but friends who I can get very good advice from, um, you know, who come into my life because they found my blog and they see me paying it forward. So am I correct in hearing that you seek advice sometimes? Oh yeah, I totally seek advice, but I'm very deliberate about who I seek advice from and what kind of advice I look for.
0: What kind of advice do you look for?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, it depends what it's about, right? So, you know, most recently I was a manager and, you know, I had different people that I would go to for advice on different aspects of being a manager. You know, for kind of a sense, like how do I find a sense of accomplishment? Like I would go to my friend, Lara For how do I deal with like difficult people problems? I would go to my friend, Camille. For like, how do I do the basics of managing? I would go to my friend, Mary part of that is because those were the things where i felt like i was most aligned with them on that topic right like i had the potential for like a huge amount of advice as i like started becoming a manager but if i got too much of it at once i would just be trying to be someone else right and i needed to figure out who i would be as a manager and then get the right advice on these specific things that meant that i was being better as myself not that i was trying to be another camille or whatever it sounds
0: like almost a drip campaign for yourself <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you know like if you if you don't ask like specific questions then you don't get good advice like if i went to someone and said how do i be a manager like what are they going to tell me like one probably that's going to be hugely influenced by their experience over the last week You know, so whatever is like something that they're like, oh, wow, I'm glad I do that. They're going to tell me to do that. You know, it's very hard to answer a general question like that. Whereas if you go to someone, you say, how do I run an effective one-on-one? Then you want much, much better advice. Uh, So, Kate, do you have any questions for me? Or should we end projects?
0: Yes, we should end projects. I have a very strong opinion on this. Uh, I have a piece called No More Forever Projects Mm -hmm. that I've referenced on this podcast before and that uh, I see you reference sometimes. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that uh, it's an idea I got from my friend Jamie Wilkinson where basically... Making sure that a project is documented and over is the most generous thing you can do rather than continuing it indefinitely. So, like, there are all sorts of ways that something can go wrong or not meet expectations or become Uh, become a bad thing or just become not a great thing once it's out the door and if I start a project it's usually because I have an inkling that it'll meet some need of mine whether Mm -hmm. that need is for fun or for companionship or for creativity or for advancing my career or whatever I have some need in mind and I don't I'm not always so clear on that need often it's several needs bundled together and I'm not very uh very clear on which one is strongest. So if I have an idea for a project that could run forever and be extremely grand, I'll try to figure out the one-time version of that, and then when I put the one-time version of it out into the world, I'll frame it as a one-time version. And if it's something where what I hoped would happen is that more of a good thing would happen, like an example is more reading. I really like reading, so sometimes I'll come up with projects that encourage reading. But actually, me holding onto those tightly and feeling bound to being the ambassador of reading is not always the best thing. I, you know, it's not always the best thing for me. It doesn't always meet needs in the moment. And so, with something like retreat, which is something that I organized many years ago with some friends, or it was a weekend reading retreat, and we just went into the woods and read books, and it was great. We actually didn't read books; we read articles, and we read ghost stories around the fireplace, and it was awesome. <laughs> And I had been sitting on the idea of writing about that for a while, and I designed the project in the first place to be like a one-time thing that I would then share as a template that other people could adopt. And what stopped me from sharing it was the feeling that I needed to be extremely grand and permissive about inviting other people to do it themselves. And when I returned to the idea a few years later, I realized I could just say, this is what I did. Mm -hmm. and if you like it, you can do it. And I bet you'll like it too, (laughs) you know, Um, that that was enough. And I've found such freedom in being able to release projects that are not present for me anymore and designing new things, not as, you know, scheduled bludgeons. Like I know you have an approach to blogging where the schedule really helps you. I really resent schedules for the most part when they're tied to creative projects And I prefer to kind of invent new structures and then enact them and share them. And I'd actually rather be a structure generator
1: than kind of a structure fulfiller, even for a lot of my personal stuff. It's like so definitely not for everyone that I wouldn't, like it's not even something I recommend. It's just something that I think works for me. Yeah. Like when I started Where the Hell is Kate? Like my thinking was like heavily influenced by your idea of no more forever projects And so I set myself a challenge to do it just for a year.
0: And how do you feel about that now?
1: Now, like, I love it so much that it's hard for me to imagine stopping it. But, you know, like, my life could change, you know, if I took less planes. (laughs) You know, like, maybe there would be, like, less of of a reason to wait where the hell is Kate. Like, maybe people would know where I was. Maybe I would have a home. (laughs) Maybe it would need a new name. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just it's a project for this part of my life. So we have a lot of people to thank. Thank you to our Kickstarter backers for making this season possible. Thank you to Yosh at Faultline Studios for editing audio recorded at home. Thank you to Math Times Joy for creating our wonderful new identity. And thank you to the band
0: Canada for our theme song, Hey Garland.
1: Should you tune in next time? We'll leave it to you.